Today I have the privilege of concluding a sermon series that we've been in just for the last couple of weeks. It's been a little mini-series uh, called What About Sex? A mini-series called What About Sex? And this mini-series is, I guess, a cousin to the larger series that we started earlier this summer called Relationships, What's Your Status? We've been talking about over the entire summer relationships, our interpersonal relationships, and how significant it is for us to do relationships well and to get our relationships right. We've been saying that to get relationships wrong is to get a lot wrong and that God deeply, deeply cares about our relationships. And we've been spending some time, the last, the last week is this week, we've been spending some time talk, talking about sex and sexuality because that's such a significant part of our interpersonal relationships, and to get sex wrong means to get a lot wrong. So we've been saying at the beginning of these sermons that they're rated PG-13. We realize and respect your wishes to um, talk about this with your children um, when you want to talk about these issues, and we don't want to rush that. So we always want to give you an opportunity to check your children into Children's Church if you want to. But we talk about sex because it's very, very important. And some of you are tagging into this uh, for the very first time today, either listening here today or listening on our website. But we've just been laying out some basic assumptions and some important groundwork that we've covered so far that I want to lay out before I get into today's subject matter. Some of the basic assumptions that we've covered is that God has the final say. God has the final say in life, particularly for the follower uh, of Jesus and for the believer but he especially wants the final say on those matters that, those issues and those subjects that matter the most, particularly our sex and sexuality. We talked last week at length about, how the fact that, about the fact that sex is a good thing. Depending on where you've come from and your background, you see sex as something that's naughty, something that's bad, something that we have to whisper about. And basically we made the case last week that sex is God-created, it's fantastic and it's wonderful, and it's only when we corrupt it and we misuse it and we step out of bounds that it becomes something that's shameful. But sex is a good thing. We've talked about how there's a right and a wrong way to manage your sexuality. We also mentioned that there is freedom, forgiveness, and redemption for all sexual brokenness. So even though we talk about some things in a challenging subject and we talk about it in a challenging way, this is a hopeful subject because God is redemptive, especially for those of us who've made mistakes who've stepped over the boundary marks, who've climbed God's fence, as it were. This is, there's hope in this message because there's healing and there's help for all manners of sexual brokenness. We've been talking about marriage a lot, and we've been talking about marriage being specifically the fence that God builds around sex and sexuality. We talked about how marriage, uh, sex is so important, it's so powerful that God seeks to build a fence around it to keep out those folks who would harm themselves with it. So we've been talking about marriage as the fence that God builds around sex and sexuality. And finally, we've encouraged each and every person as it relates to sex to actively, not passively, let God, not this culture, shape our sexual ethic right now and not later. To let God and not this culture, I'm sorry, to actively, not passively, let God and not this culture shape our sexual ethic right now and not later. And I want to continue with this very sensitive sermon series on a, with, a, with a very delicate subject. It's a hot-button issue. It's an issue that we hear talked about a whole lot. It's kind of faded into the background recently as it relates to the news and around the world because there's so much uh, major stuff going on around the world as it relates to the um, issues and the conflicts in the Middle East. 
what's going on in Ferguson and uh, other major issues that have happened as of late. But the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality has really dominated the, the news in recent years. And I think that it's important that the church begin to play some offense rather than playing defense and start to deal with this subject and deal with this issue in a very significant and a spirit-filled, Christ-centered, scripture-centered way. And I preached on this subject for the very first time last year, and it was very fruitful. I got a lot of feedback from it. It was a very challenging subject for me to tackle publicly, but I was very relieved at how well it went over and just how God honored our obedience in deciding to tackle that subject matter. And it's because this is such a, um, um, a, a, a sensitive subject matter and such an important subject matter, I sought to tackle it again in this year's sex series. We're talking this morning about straight talk about homosexuality. That's just, you just need a title this morning, straight talk about homosexuality. I found that to dance around these very sensitive issues is to do more harm than good. Uh, in my earlier years as a Christian and even as a pastor, I tried to do very little harm and do little, do very, try to avoid uh, getting into trouble and getting into fights. And so, you know, there was ways that I would dance around this or try to say very little as possible. But I found that with certain subjects, there's, there's, you just kind of got to talk straight about them. You got to go right at it. And that's what I hope to do as it relates to this particular issue today. Straight talk about homosexuality. I was in a uh, church service several years ago. I won't say the pastor, nor will I say the church, because some of you would recognize the person and the church. But I was in this church, and the pastor was preaching, and he sought to go out on one of these rabbit trails, and he ended up talking about homosexuality. And in addressing those homosexuals that might be present in his service, he said to them, hey, if you're a homosexual, you can come to this church. And I thought, this is encouraging. We're headed in the right direction. But he continued by saying, but you got two weeks to straighten out. You got two weeks to straighten out. Now, maybe he didn't mean two weeks exactly, but the message that was sent by those frightful two sentences were very tragic in my mind and in my eyes. Basically what he was saying is that your sin is such an issue here that you only have two weeks to get it straightened out. Now the problem with this is that I knew lots and lots of people in this church. I knew what they had struggled with, I knew what they were currently struggling with, and none of them seemed to get a time limit on, you know, when they had to straighten out about this. And these phrases that I've heard in others particularly as this become a national and even international uh, issue as it relates to the media and different blogs and especially as it relates to different churches, I realize that we really need to begin to talk about this subject and really need to figure out how God views this. We really need to wrap our minds and our hearts around what God has to say about this, and that's the reason that I've chosen to deal with this subject matter today. It's really difficult to work this out publicly, so I'm going to invite the Lord's presence uh, before we begin. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for these people who are gathered here to hear your word and to worship you. Father, we've come not to see people, Father, but to come, we've come to sit at your feet and to worship you and to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. So, Father, I pray that you would speak and that you would speak clearly. I pray, Lord, that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak, Lord, that your truth and your light might shine through. I pray, Lord, that you would bring freedom through these words. I pray that you would challenge us and that you would convict us, Lord. I pray that you would also encourage us, move us in your direction this morning. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So where do we start? What's square one for us as, we, uh, as it relates to this? Some might have a different opinion, but I believe that square one is that we have a thoroughly converted Christian mind as it relates to this subject. Whenever I talk about difficult subjects, and we've been seeming to talk about a lot of difficult subjects lately, you know, I don't shy away from talking about this as just a natural starting point. It's easy for us to begin to see these issues through the lenses of our personal worldviews and our personal experiences. And I feel like this is such a high-stakes issue that it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to view this subject matter, particularly as a follower of Jesus, from any other vantage other than from God's vantage point. And so that's why I say it's necessary, square one for us, is to view this issue and other significant issues through the lenses of faith with a thoroughly converted Christian mind. We have a tendency to view our world through, uh, view scripture, excuse me, through our lenses of our experiences and our own worldview. But I believe God is challenging us and calling us to view our world, to view our issues, and the issues around us through the lenses of Scripture rather than the other way around. And what God demands is that our worldview be viewed from the vantage point of Scripture. And some of you are saying, a thoroughly converted Christian mind, I just got saved last week, I don't have that yet. There's hope for you. Uh, and basically what I'm saying is that's what we should be moving towards. That's what we should be moving towards. That's the direction we should be heading, Right? And some of you, when you get to these difficult subjects like this, you say, listen, I don't have a clue what the Bible says about this. I haven't even given it a whole, much, you know, a whole lot of consideration yet. But the disposition of your heart should be, I want to see what God has to say about this. Before I start you know, blogging about it, before I go shooting off at the mouth, before I start Facebooking about it, I want to see what God has to say about this. I want to see what God has to say. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot we can get wrong. There's a lot of damage we can do by just talking and opining all over the place. But I want to see this. I want to view this. I want to have my heart changed as a result of what God has to say about this. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, listen, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God wants to give you a new mind. And with that new mind, he wants you to view these issues so you can do things his way. And once we start with, you know, a thoroughly converted Christian mind, we begin to see life's most important issues through the lenses of life's most important objectives. And that's why it's important for us to start with love. We start with love. I've heard it said often that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the more I live this life and the more I relate to people and the more I pastor people, the more I realize that that's true. When people understand that you're leading with them in your relationship with them with love and respect and care for them, then they're more inclined to hear what you have to say, especially if what you have to say is something difficult, right? Something challenging. And that we start with love is so vitally important, and that's one of the main things that happens as we have a thoroughly converted Christian mind. And some of us have such selective vision and selective hearing when it comes to dealing with issues of sin, particularly things that rub us the wrong way. But when we're we're in the midst of our sin, and when we've gone off the rails, 
When we look at scripture, all we can read is about God's love and his redemption. Look at that. There's love in every chapter. There's redemption. And look, there's forgiveness in here. This is fantastic, right? But what happens when we're dealing with somebody else's sin, somebody else's issue, particularly these, those, you know, handful of sins and issues that are really sort of disgusting to us, that are really just sort of just sort of make us turn up our nose. All of a sudden, when we read those same scriptures, we read those same verses, all of a sudden we see God as a God of wrath with a lightning bolt in each hand ready to dole out punishment and, you know, just stoking the fires of hell to get it nice and warm for those who deal with things that we don't particularly deal with. We have selective vision and hearing when it comes to this stuff. But when we look at perhaps one of the most... um, uh, uh, memorable or famous passages of scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we see that Jesus comes to the earth, and this is God's way of leading with love. God's objective in sending Jesus to earth is for love. Verse 16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him, God's greatest expression of love for this world was not gifting you to the world. I know you think you're God's gift to the world, right? But God's greatest expression of love is his son Jesus and the work of the cross. He sacrificially gave his son because he loves us. His son went through gruesome, torturous pain because he loved us. He started with that. He started that way. And Jesus not only came to die for our sins, but Jesus came to show us what it looks like to love difficult people, what it looks like to love folks who have some issues, issues. And I appreciate that because I myself have issues. I have issues. I know you might not have issues. You might have squared that away, you know, several years ago with your holy self, right? But I have issues. And when I look at how Jesus interacts with people with issues, I get real hopeful. I get real hopeful. But Jesus not only died for our sins, but he came as an example for how to deal with difficult people and difficult issues. We look at how he deals with a person like Zacchaeus, a robber, a thief, a tax collector, robbing from his own countrymen. Does Jesus go and point a finger in his face? Does Jesus cast them out and say, listen, you, you can't partake. You can't partake. You can't be saved. You can't be born again. Get away from me. You disgust me. Jesus says, no, I'm coming to your house today. I hope you have a snack in the cupboards because I'm coming to fellowship with you today. Jesus interacts with a woman caught in adultery. Does he cast her away? Does he cast her away? Does he point his finger and say, shame on you? No, he defends her. He forgives her sins And he sends her on her way. And time after time, we see Jesus interacting with difficult people, dealing with difficult issues, and Jesus seems to always lead with love and respect, with always wonderful, wonderful results. The scriptures tell us that it's his kindness and his love that leads to repentance. It doesn't say it's his wrath and judgment that leads people to repentance. It's his kindness. It's his mercy. It's his love. And Jesus commissions his disciples, that's you and me, to go and to do the same, to start with love, compassion, mercy, and understanding. 
And every time I talk about this issue, whether I'm talking about it formally or talking about it informally, I like to just say that I think we owe uh, the homosexual community, gay and lesbian community, an apology. From the church, we, we owe them apology. And I feel like I represent God. I feel like I'm an officer of the church. And in that regard, I feel like we owe them an apology. An apology for our insensitivity. An apology for dropping the ball on this issue. I think that we might have been too quiet over the years as people have been persecuted, as people have been abused, as people have been shunned, as people have not been shown the love of Jesus Christ because they deal with one of those things that fall on the short list of you know, untouchable, unmentionable sins. We've been too quiet. And I think at times we've perhaps been a little too loud. We've been too loud in proclaiming how that is so shameful and how you should just sort of bootstrap this thing and stop it and change yourself and check yourself into a camp because, after all, that's, it's as simple as that. We've been too loud and we've been spoken authoritatively on things that we're not an authority on. We've spoken confidently about things that we're not confident about and we've hurt people, we've hurt them deeply. So much so that some will vow to never step foot in a church again. And that's really shameful because I believe that we're called to love people. I believe that God has called us to be a hospital for the sick. And if the sick can't come to the hospital, then that hospital needs to close and repurpose its facilities and resources. An apology for not being a hospital for the sick. We've ignored bullying in schools and colleges. We've told, laughed at, and turned a blind eye to jokes and slurs and all manners of disrespectful conversation. We've mishandled those that are really struggling with this issue, some with poor motives and some with good motives. In many ways, we've not led with love, but instead we've led with judgment, condemnation, an air of superiority, and that's not God's way. And I apologize personally if I've ever done so. And I apologize on behalf of the church, and particularly this church. And I vow that in this church, it will be different. I vow that in this church, it will be different. Now, I told you earlier that we're a hospital. And your particular sickness might be insensitivity and judgmental, and judgmental nature. And so there's room for you even in this hospital but I just want to tell you that it's going to be different in this church. You do not have an ally in me if your goal is to be disrespectful and to be rude to those who struggle with this issue. You do not have an ally in me if you wish to tell jokes, if you wish to tell slurs and label people in an unloving, uncaring way. You do not have an ally in me, and you do not have an ally in this church. So don't whisper to me any jokes. Don't make any comments because that's not what we're about here. It's not what we're about. It's not okay for us to whisper and to joke about what you're dealing with. So this is, this is, there's no different with this particular issue. That's not who we are, and we won't go there. And somebody will come and talk to you, talk to you, if we see these sorts of things going on, not out of uh, disrespect to you, but out of great care and concern for those who really really struggle with this issue. Because if you sit down and you talk to folks who are dealing with this, you realize that this is, these are real people 
dealing with real issues. Real people dealing with real issues. And when you talk to somebody and you hear their story, particularly that first time, you realize how little you know. You realize how little you know. And you realize how foolish your position is and how foolish some of the things that you've said. And really the only natural response is to get down on your knees and repent. And some of you haven't had the privilege, you haven't had the luxury of hearing somebody's story, particularly somebody who is trying to engage Christian community. Well, I'm going to read this story to you. This was powerful last year when I read it. I want to read it to you this, this, this morning. This is a homosexual believer's uh, story. Um, he writes, the purpose of me sp- spilling this story, the most painful one I have, is to say this. We sit among you. We are people struggling with being gay, afraid of what their closest family and friends would say. We laugh at your homo jokes, and then we go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and hate what we see. We take a deep breath, and we go back inside. We tolerate churches designed around married couples, married conferences, and marriage sermons. Most of us can't come out. We risk losing the friendships we have, so we'd rather dine on surface relationships instead of having none. We long for someone to understand, to get it. It's not that they don't love me regardless because I'm not doing anything. I'm not, a, I'm not at gay bars or trolling on the internet looking for someone. I'm not sinning in my sexual behavior. I came out to a friend of mine and he looked down at the table, sullen and said, everything must be really difficult for you. We sat there in silence for a while and I thought, he gets it. The church will hug the man that just cheated his wife for a year and shun the struggling gay guy who hasn't had sex in 10 years. Guaranteed, easy money, and I'd burn every earthly possession I have, empty my bank accounts, quit my job, and terminate every relationship I have for a pill to change over in a heartbeat. I'd walk away from that pride, buck-naked, unemployed, broke, and straight, he said. But unlike my heroes of my youth, my secret identity clings to me, and I am forced to hide from what is called to be the most loving, compassionate place on earth, the church. So here's what I ask. Be kind to us. We are looking for friends that listen and have compassion on us. We are not looking for you to understand us completely. We just want to go through our day not feeling like monsters. We run the risk of losing the people we value by coming out, but we must weigh that against being fake and pretending we are straight. I also ask that we cut out the gay bashing talk. I get that it's funny with your friends and it cuts to the quick, but I guarantee you've said it in front of us and we twist inside and mourn inside. Be kind to us, he writes. We are broken and we need no more reminders. And that's sobering every time I hear that story, every time I read it. It's the firsthand frontline account of somebody who is wrestling with this, and as he said, he's not out just living, you know, living it up as a gay guy, just going from bar to bar, just with complete disregard for God's standard. This is a person that's wrestling wrestling with what God says and with how he feels each and every day. And in this letter, he makes an appeal to you, to me, to us, the church, to be kind, try our very best to uh, be understanding and to minimally do no harm, to do no harm. And I think there's a major problem as we start to deal with this issue, a problem that this uh, letter highlights 
And the problem is that we somehow begin to rank sins and rank these issues at which things got really dislikes. And somehow our disgust factor really sort of superimposes itself on the scripture and God's opinion. And somehow we come up with a list and a hierarchy of things that God must be really, really, really disgusted with. And on the bottom, usually our stuff, is a list of things that, you know, that God just is really not too happy with. He's not too happy with. And I think that as we have a thoroughly converted Christian mind and as we start with love on this, I think it's helpful for us to see through the lenses of Scripture that God views sin as sin. God views sin as, as sin. And I think many of us would agree that as we've heard the conversation about uh, the LGBT community and the lifestyle, somehow we've sort of elevated that as the worst of all sins. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's the reality, folks. And when I lose sight of my own sinfulness, it becomes really easy for me to look at yours. When I've occupied myself with looking at your sinfulness and your brokenness, listen, I can spot every detail. But guess what? When I'm living humbly, when I'm living my life on my knees, when I'm aware of what Paul says that we've all fallen short, many of us today, and the day's not even really begun yet, when I'm aware of my sinfulness and my brokenness, you know what? I would look at somebody else's sin, but I just can't schedule it. I don't have the time. Because I'm so busy talking to God about my own stuff. I'm so busy searching the scriptures and dissecting how I can please God with my life. I simply don't have the time to dissect somebody's issues, to point the finger, and to see where they might fall on God's despicable list. I don't have the time. And some of us have made the time to do this over and over and over And over, and let me tell you, friends, there is a danger in our ranking sins. There's a danger in ranking sins. Because God doesn't seem to rank them. You find that list in Scripture, you bring it to me. But God doesn't seem to rank these. And like I said earlier, we always put somebody else's stuff on the top. And we highlight it with a red, you know, pen because that's really bad. And we put our stuff on the bottom and say, you know what, that's not that big a deal. But I don't think it works that way. And as church folks, we have a handful of things that we actively participate in regularly. Church people love to eat and overeat and overeat on top of that, take a nap and overeat some more. Right? How many sermons have you heard on overeating and gluttony? How many, how many Facebook posts have you seen? How many memes are circulating about how terrible that is? Probably very few. We love to be greedy. We love to even fashion the scriptures to say that we're supposed to be rich and everybody's supposed to be rich and have that big old house with those big old pillars with those big old cars out front. It's in there. Just look in there. It's in there. Truth is not in there. And we've just sort of Christianized greed. But that's no problem. We'll deal with that. And spiritual pride, everybody's got a title. Everybody's bishop something. Everybody's got armor bearers and all this. Listen, we've, 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 we've legalized in a Christian sense spiritual pride and narcissism. Nobody's speaking out about that, or few are. 
Because we like our issues, our pet issues. We, we want to keep our stuff. But don't you dare utter that you're struggling with the sin and the issues that surround homosexuality. Don't you dare mention that. Otherwise, you'll make the list. But when I look at how Jesus does things, I look at his system, he has a unique way of leveling the ground that lies beneath the cross. That all ground is level beneath the cross, that no matter what your issue is, no matter what your issue is, no matter what you struggle with, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. You're struggling with that? Come to me. You've murdered people? Oh, that's terrible. Come to me. Oh, you, you, you have an eating disorder? Come to me. You have a sin issue? Come to me. No matter what it is, come to me. And he chastises us as we look to our left and we look to our right and try to find somebody who we're, who we're better than or find somebody who's worse than us. He says, no, 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 keep your eyes on me. You don't have time for that. Keep your eyes on me because all ground beneath this cross, all ground beneath this cross is level. We all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. And rather than leading with judgment, God leads with love. And rather than leading with judgment, Jesus leads with love and respect. But the reality is that loving people also means that we speak the truth in love. Loving them certainly means that we don't disrespect them and we don't call them slurs and we don't shun them and we don't kick them out of our assemblies. But it's terribly unloving to let someone wrap their entire identity around their sexual orientation. It's terribly unloving. It's terribly unloving to not speak about this and to urge them to consider what God has to say about this because he has plenty to say about this. It's not loving to watch your friends go down and down and down because they wrap their whole identity around their sexual identity or how they identify as it relates to sexuality. It's important that we allow truth to be spoken in love and because of that reality, it's important that we make Scripture a priority. I said earlier that we begin with God's vantage point, begin with God's viewpoint on this particular issue. And we believe that Scripture speaks directly to this issue, and we need to embrace it and let the Scriptures shape our thinking on this. Part of the challenge is that many people can't understand why is same-sex attraction sinful particularly if they believe they haven't chosen to be that way. They believe that perhaps they were born that way. And that whenever I'm talking about this particular issue, I feel the need to clarify that I don't believe this, the scriptures tell us that you know, attraction is a sin. I don't believe that attraction is a sin in the same way that being tempted in certain ways is, is not a sin. Scripture doesn't talk about temptation as being sinful. So in the same way, I don't believe that a certain attraction or a certain leaning with regard to who you're naturally attracted to, I don't believe that that's necessarily where the sin happens, right? I believe that the scripture is clear that our actions or how we act and how we respond to those attractions, to those temptations are what's sinful, not just on this particular issue, but as it relates to all manners of sin and temptation. Does that make sense what I'm saying? What the Bible is, is clear, is that homosexual actions and activity are sin. The truth of the matter is that the scripture uh, does not affirm, nor is it neutral, about homosexual activity. 
You can search the scriptures and you won't find a neutral or affirming passage of scripture in all of the Bible as it relates to this particular issue. You won't find it. And for those of you joining us right now, we're talking about a sensitive subject. We're talking about homosexuality. It is rated PG-13. And I just want you to know that uh, as you choose to engage here. But the scriptures do not speak neutrally nor in any affirming way with regard to this subject. And I want to read a few key passages, four from the New Testament and one from the Old. And I just want to paint a picture for you of what the scriptures has to say about this particular issue. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20 through 23. Do not defy yourself by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech, for you must not bring the shame on the name of God. I am the Lord. Verse 22, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, this is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery are who are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice those aren't ranked, right? Those are just sinful issues that God says he will deal with. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. We know that the law is good when, we, when used correctly, for the law is not intended for people who do what is right, it is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Jude chapter 1 verse 7, and not... And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and, uh, and fire and severe as, excuse me, those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. These and more passages of scripture are basically a sample of the tone that the scriptures take as it relates to this particular issue. And if we are going to do business with the scripture in any significant or serious measure, then we have to do business with God on his terms and on his turf. We have to wrestle with what he says. And we don't get to take the editor's pen and draw lines through things and tear pages out. We have to wrestle with what God says because he's the architect of this thing. And if we want to get this right, if we want to do life in a fruitful, life-giving way, then we have to do business with God on his terms and on his turf. And any serious follower of Jesus has to deal with these verses, not take a sidestep and maybe view them from a different angle, but we have to deal with them, excuse me, head on. We have to deal with them head on. And there are some passages of the scripture, and there are some issues 
that we approach Scripture and things don't appear to be black and white, that there's wiggle room and there can, there can be ar arguments and conversations about what does it really, really mean. But for this issue, I believe that in many ways it's pretty black and white where God stands on this. If we're using the Bible as our authority on how we should live life, what we should do and what we shouldn't, I believe it's pretty black and white. I believe that what the scripture set forth is that the homosexual way of living, particularly as it works out sexuality, is a deviation uh, from God's design for how we were supposed to interact sexually. God created man and female. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply, to have intimacy with one another, to become one. Homosexual sex is not what God had in mind, I know that's very unpopular. It even feels kind of awkward to say, to be very honest with you. But I'm charged with pre preaching God's word and delivering his truth. And some of you would say, but I got a friend that struggled with that. I have a parent that wrestles with this issue. And I have, I know people who are in deeply committed, loving relationships. And listen, they have a better relationship than some heterosexual people that I know. That may be fine. And that be well. That may be well. But at the end of the day, God challenges us to embrace Scripture and to do what it says. To do what it says. And to hold that standard. We need to let God, through Scripture, shape our sexual ethic on this issue and not the culture. Because the reality is the culture will ebb and flow. The culture will move and in and out. You look throughout the course of history, you know, the dominant opinion on many of these issues has changed because the culture tends to change with the winds and the whims of what's popular and unpopular. But what God promises us with his word and with his standard is something immovable, something that is infracturable, something that's unmovable, something that is solid because God does not change. He knew what was best for us then when he spoke it, and he knows that that same standard and that same practice will work for us today. It may not be popular. It might cost us something <laughs> to believe this and to preach this, but it's God's word, and we must lean into it. So as we embrace scripture, because we've led with love and because we realize that God's worldview is the way that we should deal with this, I think it's important, and I said this last year, for us to sort of round this out by saying that it's not us versus them. It's not a us versus them. And I just want to let you know that many people, that because this is a hot button issue, many people will make it about that. Now, do you either love, do you love scripture or do you love homosexuals? Which one? You got to pick one. And they'll get in your face about it. And they'll make you feel like a bigot. And they'll put you on the spot. And they'll demand an answer that might put you in the hot seat because from their vantage point, if you don't agree with what they're doing, if you don't agree with how they've chosen to express their sexuality, then you've got a problem with them. And that's hateful. And I don't believe that this has to be that way, which is why I challenged us all to lead with love. Some of you say, listen, preacher, you're drawing some hard lines here. You're drawing some really hard lines here. And I would say to you that I didn't draw these lines. I didn't draw these lines. 
I am, however, pointing them out to you today, but these are not my lines to draw, and because I did not draw them, I cannot erase them. Because I didn't draw them, I cannot erase them. And frankly, I just feel, and this will be helpful for you as you try to figure out how to navigate this and how to discuss this in your workplace and with your friends and family, because it's a very difficult issue. I've just taken to asking people, listen, before I begin to talk about this, is there any room for us to disagree on this? Is there any room for us to disagree? Because if you can't be disagreed with this, then we, we, we won't talk about it. We won't talk about this. And some people just, you, you, you aren't allowed to disagree with them, even though they disagree with you. You aren't allowed to disagree with them. And I've just found that as a pastor, because I, my opinion not only is representative of who I am, but I also represent this church. I also represent the Vineyard Movement and I especially represent God, I found that I just have to pass on this conversation in certain places and certain spaces. Because I don't have time to unpack it. I don't have time to say what I, what I need to say and unpack this how I want to unpack it. Plus, the person that's asking the questions is being a little bit hostile and it won't be received well. And sometimes I have to just say, you know what? It's a little complicated. I don't have time to unpack that. And I just, I can't discuss that right now. I used to look at that response as cowardly. Because I used to be, you know, just young and rambunctious. I knew what I knew, and I was ready for a fight. Okay? But these days, I'm a little more measured. I understand that there are real people dealing with these real issues, and that we live in a gotcha soundbite culture that's eager to get one sentence and take it out of context. So oftentimes, I choose to pass because it's not us versus them. It's not. It's not. I'm for you. I love you. I love you so much that I just can't sit by and let you wrap your whole identity around your sexual identity. I can't do it. I, I love you too much. I love you too much. I love you too much. But it's important as we round this thing out that we understand that we represent God and that God is for those that struggle with any manner of brokenness and issue particularly is for those who wrestle with this because it's such a powerful, powerful issue. It's not us versus them. We are for them. So how do we, what's the big picture here? Worship team, you can come up. I want to restate these things as I close today um, because it's so important. I think many of you have family members that deal with this, friends that deal with this, You've been, you know, sort of being pulled into conversations about this, and I don't want you to forget how we're supposed to work this out. Thoroughly converted Christian mind. What does God have to say about this? We're also supposed to start with love. Start with love. If you're feeling like you want to, you're in for a fight, if you're digging your heels in, then go get a sip of water and come back. Right? Because there's something wrong with that. We understand that sin is sin. We don't get to rank them. We don't get to chart them out by degrees of intensity. Sin is sin. We choose to embrace Scripture and what God has to say about this. And finally, we realize that it's not us versus them. Now, there's some gaps in there that the Holy Spirit will situationally fill in for you. There's specific people that need to be dealt with specific ways. And my prayer as we wrap our hearts and our minds around this issue is that we will allow God's spirit to lead us and nothing else. And nothing else. Listen, God wants to use us to be a blessing to the gay and lesbian community. He wants us to be a blessing to them with love 
and truth. And my prayer is that we all allow God to do that with wonderful results. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity, Lord, to be your light. The opportunity, God, to speak uh, to people who are wrestling and to be a light to them and to be love for them. Father, we realize that we may not be the first Christian to get to them, Father, and that some damage might have been done in your name before we even arrived. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us wisdom, you would give us patience, and more importantly, Lord, that you would give us grace to deal with fragile people um, with the knowledge that they are, are fragile, Lord, and that they are very valuable to you. So Holy Spirit, I just, God, I just pray for those who, 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 who are in the front lines of this. They have friends, they have families, they have neighbors that deal with this, Father, and it's a real struggle for them to land where you land on this, Father. I pray that you would minister to their hearts right now, Father. God, I pray that you would bring wisdom, light, and love, Lord. God, I pray for those of us who have been guilty of being on the wrong side of this thing, We've said things, we've done things, we've laughed, we've been disrespectful, we've been unloving. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, and that we feel your forgiveness and your love as we worship you today, Father. And Lord, as we worship you today corporately together here, Father, would you just minister to our hearts and give us exactly what we need to deal with this issue. I pray specifically, Lord, for those who are wrestling with this issue, whether it be secretly or publicly, Father, I pray that you would speak to their hearts today, Lord, and deal with them according to where they are. God, we worship you for who you are, and we ask that, Lord, that you give us exactly what we need today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.